This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. We're coming into the Beechworth Cemetery and the cemetery is divided up into all the sections. Today we head to northeastern Victoria to trace the story of one of the region's most influential families. And we're coming to see the grave of my great-grandfather, uh, Pan Luk, who came out to Australia from China in about 1852. But he's not buried in the Chinese section. Pan Luk's grave was only recently uncovered and his remarkable story revealed. His family arrived in Australia during the hype and chaos of the Victorian gold rush and went on to lay the foundations of one of the state's most successful enterprises. Let's head out to this alpine region and find out more with producer Miyuki Yoki-Ranta and Carol, Panluk's great-granddaughter. Yeah, so this is what we we put up for him. Could you read it for me? Yeah. It's a beautiful black stone standing up vertically and in red it says um, Pan Luk um, in loving memory of Pan Luk born Canton China 1831 died Beechworth 1889 age 58 a pioneer of the Buckland Valley and a survivor of the 1857 Buckland riot The Europeans were a bit careless in how they recorded the names of the Chinese. The language, the symbols seemed so alien. And then some years ago, two of my cousins worked out that his name had been recorded incorrectly because often Chinese names were written down in a different way. Pan Luk, for instance, was dashed out as Pan Fook. And we're able to find out where he was actually buried. Though he might have been lost in the wilds of the Beechworth Cemetery... And though he arrived with the nameless thousands during the Victorian Gold Rush era, the Pan Looks established themselves as one of the most well-known families of the Ovens Valley. Mining historian Andrew Swift has walked these hills since he was a child, brushing the dirt off pieces of history. They found gold in central Victoria in 1851, you know, and all of a sudden all of the local shepherds, some who'd been to the California diggings and returned, had a knowledge that gold lay somewhere in the landscape potentially and so so you then get fellas coming up into the mountains definitely by mid-1853 they were discovering gold in these areas but it may not necessarily have been the rich gold mm-hmm. um, but they then discovered the Buckland Valley gold field and that saw a rush of 6,000 people towards the end of 1853. From Beechworth the Buckland Valley was about a 50-kilometre walk southeast, and the valley filled with Europeans, Americans, and fellas from the British Isles. After the initial rush, the Chinese came predominantly from the trade port of Canton, or Guangdong, and predominantly from poor farming families. A lot of them were not happy. They really didn't want to come. They were miserable. They were in a foreign land. They had family pressure on them to come. Local historian Diane Talbot is the author of the Buckland Valley Goldfield. They'd send the son, he'd find the gold, he'd bring it home, you know, we'd live happily ever after. And they had this the Chinese pressure. suffered terribly because of that misconception, both in that the gold wasn't strewn abundantly across the valleys 
and that their mere presence sent shivers down the spines of those who preceded them. So we're sort of coming up to the sort of uh, northern edge of the occupation area through here, through all of this bush. And you can see through here all how thick all of this is. Yeah. This is how thick it was before we did the site surveys back in the sort of late 1990s. Um, and then the bushfires came through and it opened up all of that ground cover and you could see all of the sort of details of terracing and rock piles oh, and wow. all of a sudden we realised that well, there actually was quite a significant Chinese camp here. So you look at this camp for instance, they worked a lot like a factory. So if you've got European miners, they're usually in small groups, maybe up to five. And then at the end of the day, they would then be totally exhausted, but they would then have to go and cook their meals and then wash their clothes. And so it wasn't really necessarily efficient. But when you get a large group of Chinese miners, orchestrated by headmen, mm -hmm. some of these fellas here would be you know, preparing meals for the day. Others would be tending vegetable gardens. And then a group, the larger group of the Chinese miners would then go to the claims. But when they came back, they would be well fed and then they'd be full of energy and they'd be able to process the grounds, you know, much more efficiently than, say, a lot of the European miners. Mm -hmm. And so there was resentment, too, because of that efficientness yep. of these men who came in and reworked a lot of the older claims. I think there were two really sore points, or three probably. The amount of Chinese that were coming into the valley very quickly, that they started with the abandoned claims but then they started to move up the valley a bit further and work on new ground which the Europeans were very resentful of that for some reason they thought they had uh, exclusive rights to it. The other thing that caused an upset was the Europeans had been there for probably three or maybe four years and they had not at that point erected a church but the Chinese were there in a matter of weeks and they had erected a temple which they opened the day before the riot. Ovens and Murray Valley Advertiser, 3rd of July 1857. Whatever may be the religious creed of our long-tailed intruders of the Mongol breed, they have in one instance put Christianity to the blush inasmuch as they have been the first to open a place of worship, if it's not desecration to make use of such a term, on the Buckland. July 3rd, 1857. One day before Australia's first anti-Chinese race riot. What were simmering tensions, a skirmish here, a torn up swag there, developed into a full roiling boil. The authorities in Beechworth had been asked to send someone over there to sort this out and it never happened and repeatedly they asked and nothing happened and I think in the end the Bucklanders just decided to take matters into their own hands. And what were clans of Scottish, Irish, French, English, Americans and on fused together into a menacing crowd defined not by their race but by their fear of the other. It got to the point where a chap called um, Anderson said, well, you'll need to take up a weapon and, you know, do something now, which they did on the 4th of July. The nature of the Buckland Valley is it's really steep-sided and everything 
associated with the mining is confined to this narrow strip of flat land that's in some instances no more than 300 meters wide and you know extending for that 14 miles so these european miners you know got at the top end of the valley basically and then as they went further down they was literally hurting them down the valley as further on they got down the valley the worse it got until they eventually got to the crossing place um, on the lower Buckland and that's where there became a bit of a bottleneck then that um, the Chinese were trying to get across the log. And of course you've got, you know, nearly 2,000 Chinese fellas all trying to escape the Buckland, herded, you know, by no more than 100 or so European fellas who are armed to the teeth and it's wet, it's been snowing and, you know, they're sliding off, they're slipping off, it's panic, you know. And there were reports there were so many Chinese swags and possessions in the river you could just about walk across the river on top of them. It's not known how many men died in the riot. The authorities who could call things to order were 24 to 48 hours away in the administrative centre of Beechworth. And when they did arrive, evidence was scattered and scarce. Only four men were convicted, and for the lesser charges of rioting and unlawful assemblage. White Australia had been inscribed into the landscape. Where they'll chop off the head of a Chinaman. Tis a jolly rum country, deny it who can. Where they chop off the head of a Chinaman. What was the flow-on effect at a legislative level of the riot? Well, I think it was not long after then they brought in the, the poll taxes and um, they started to limit the amount of Chinese that were coming in to Victoria. So it was really the beginning of, I wouldn't say the white Australia policy, but re restricting immigration or trying to restrict immigration. Worse than a Pan Look was a young man in his 20s when his store burnt down in the riot. But despite the hostility hanging in the air, he returned to the Buckland Flats, set up shop again, and married a young Irish woman. This is Carol Moore, his great-granddaughter. He was a storekeeper. He had another store and hotel there, which, um, which was burnt down again. Then he had all the little children then, I think, and his wife. And this sounds dramatic, but my mother told me that the, um, the family story was always that her grandfather, Pan Look, had died of a broken heart because of what had happened up in the Buckland. Into these conditions, William Pan Look, the eldest of six, was born. My grandfather had a very tough life. He was only, I think he was 11, 13 or something like that when his father died. And he was left down in the Buckland with his mother and all the little children and he was the oldest. And their hotel had just burnt down. Um, there are stories of him when he was just a young boy walking all the way up from through Myrtleford and back up to the Buckland from Beechworth with big sacks of rice on his back to take up there to his family. And, you know, often having racist taunts thrown at him on the way and he had to put up with being half Chinese apart from being poor and apart from being the oldest in the family. But William, with the help of his siblings and his mother, planted the seeds to their future. Hops. The green-yellow clusters of flowers of the hop plant are a bittering and flavouring agent 
for Australia's national drink, beer. We're sitting in an old homestead that was built by um, William Pamuk back in 1913. Yeah, so this is where him and his um, children grew up. My name's Alan Monching and I'm manager of Ross River Hop Gardens, uh, which are part of Hop Products Australia. My father and my grandfather have worked here, so um, yeah, I'm third generation. Gordon Monching, Alan's granddad, was a blacksmith at Ross Trevor Hop Gardens and a close friend to the Pan Looks. As the glimmers of gold became harder to find, miners were turning to new endeavours. The rich alluvial soils of the Ovens Valley, one valley over from the Buckland, were ripe for agriculture. Um, hops like really nice, cold, frosty winters, days, which makes them go to sleep and then they wake up nice and fresh. And we, um, yeah, we like good plentiful water with, you know, good quality water. And the, all the river flats are fairly alluvial river flats to grow, you know, grow good hops. The Pan Looks relocated and expanded their market gardening knowledge to industrial scales, first with tobacco and then hops. There was a lovely kind man called Asu, who was like a father to William and really nurtured them. And they ended up buying his farm and then more and more acres and built up the big hop gardens there. Um, not many other people were growing hops to that size in, in the area, or basically in Australia, really. Um, there's a lot of small hop farms in Tasmania, but as a bigger farm, bigger enterprise, the Panlooks were the earliest. With big crop yields comes a big harvest and the need for a big workforce, a workforce much larger than the local community could muster. Toward the end of summer, around mid-February, Ross Trevor would open its gates to nearly a thousand pickers and a makeshift town would apparate for the duration of the harvest. They all came from the inner city of Melbourne and that mum said, you know, there was a lot of poverty there. That, and it was a place where people could come and have a um, summer holiday. Hand-picked harvests began in the early 1900s and ended with the introduction of machinery in the 60s. So pickers would come, the special hop pickers train was organised and, um, and it was all advertised in the Melbourne papers and so they'd apply for the jobs down there or get on the train. Well, they'd get off the train and the immediate comp would gather as, as a group and Mr Panlook would give a speech on... Um, Ladies and uh, gentlemen. All their requirements, all their, you know, what they can do, what they can't do and... I hope... Yeah, your harvest speech, yeah. That because this microphone has been set up in front of me, that uh, you people will not all be expecting to take a box or cop the lot. But I do hope that you will cop enough of the hops off the vines each day into your bins that will make you happy during the whole season of the hop picking last. 
they pick the hops into into a bin and they, they put it into a sack and then they get weighed out in the paddock and they get paid on that weight. It gives me very, very much pleasure indeed to extend to each and every one of you good people a very hearty welcome to Ross Trevor, where you have assembled for the hop harvest of 1953. And it's quite prudent in what what he said and things like even back then about you know, in hops now we talk about a thing called Australia's matter which if you don't want any foreign product in your hops and he was talking about that back then. But they could bring the whole family, and there was a hut to live in with little um like little stretcher type things with hessian covered mattresses i can remember as a kid we would go down there and i thought it was the most fantastic place because they had rows and rows and rows of huts and um and then they had community kitchens and um and bathroom areas that everyone used it was summer so it was warm there was a school here my father went to the school and there was a canteen there was uh butchers the police had their own lockup and the hall was sort of a real, real uh, gathering for everyone. And lots of activities. I remember written on the railway bridge that runs through the middle of the farm, the, where the railway used to go through from Wangaratta to Bright, was written, um, come all, boxing Friday night, and they're written in white paint. If anyone had a bit of a dispute in the paddock, well, they're quite welcome to sort it out at the hall because they had a boxing ring in there. <laughs> I remember the dancers, so the hop pickers would all get dressed up I was only a child, but for us little kids it was like, you know, Hollywood movie stars seeing all these gorgeous um, people from Melbourne dressed up in all their fancy clothes. I'm in a dancing mood, a gay romancing mood, whenever I'm with you. It employed a lot of people in the area and a lot of people out of the area, and it was a big sense of community because you were having a lot of most of the same people coming back every year whether they're from the city or regional areas or local and they're all getting together in this big happy community. Alan was saying that a lot of people go and spread their family's ashes yeah. on, the, on the farm now yeah. because it, it meant so much to them. Well it's a bit of a pilgrimage site, you know, there was a lot of heart to Ross Trevor Hop Gardens. A heart with a head for business. A lot of the wages were paid in tokens, only redeemable at the Ross Trevor store on the farm. During those first few harvest years, the Smiths Weekly, a patriotic tabloid newspaper, kept a watchful eye over Pan Look's growing empire. Not everyone was on board with William's pop-up village, or perhaps the figure of William himself. Smiths Weekly, May 23rd, 1925. Where are you going, my pretty maid? Hop picking for half caste, sir, she said. Not many people, in any case, would rush a holiday that consisted in picking hops from half past five in the morning till seven in the evening, six days a week, under the direction of a Chinese overseer. That, that such, such conditions, conditions existed all as a poor augury for the future of white Australia. The customer is not in loud. My name is uh, Les Cooper. Les is Carol Moore's cousin, the son of William's eldest child. Neither, it is to be hoped, is the practice of a white Neither, man and woman working for coloured people. Neither, it is hoped, is the practice of white men and women working for coloured people. 
my mother was enormously proud of being Chinese, which we always, our family always has been. But she said that her aunties and uncles and her father's generation, who were the first generation of half Chinese, half Irish, it was a lot harder for them. Some of them really wished that they didn't look Chinese. Some of them changed their name so they didn't have a Chinese name. One of mum's aunties told her that she never had children because she didn't want her children to have to go through what she went through. My mum told me and my cousin Carol's mum told her that it was a testimonial prepared as a reaction by the, the people of the Ovens Valley to that article from the Smiths Weekly. I'll read it out to you. Dear Sir, on behalf of the residents of the Ovens Valley, we the undersigned hereby present you with this address as a mark of the esteem in which you are held by all sections of the community. Ross Trevor Hopgarden is the Carol's mum, Nanette Moore, died earlier this year, but was recorded reading the same testimonial presented to her father. A black and white print with an ornate type setting, meticulously surrounded by photos of the hop farm and harvest, and crested by a stately portrait of William himself. We admire you for your gifts of mind and heart, your optimism, your generosity and your public spiritedness. We recognise in you a big Australian, tolerant and broad-minded, conscious of your nature's valley's resources and ever loyal in your devotion and disinterestedness. That's a big one. You surely are a fine type of the race of empire builders. ...you as one of the most respected leaders in this locality. J Price, E.J. Chairman. W.H. Goldsworthy, J.P. You know, these Chinese miners were escaping rebellion and all sorts of strife and civil war in China to come to Australia to get an opportunity to make some money and improve their lives, whether they stayed here or went back to China. Well, you probably know, but this year is the 200th anniversary of the first Chinese migrant to Australia. Is it? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And 1818. 1818. Well, I reckon we owe a lot to that fella, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> he started something, you know, he was a bit of a pioneer in his own way. <laughs> this is Ken with Six O'Clock Rock. Alpine Radio broadcasts on 96.5 FM in the Kiwa Valley, 92.9 FM in the Ovens Valley, 94.5 FM in Herrickville. And now this is an example of what we do. I'm driving past Ross Trevor Hop Gardens, which is now owned by a large multinational. I suppose an inevitable outcome for a family business looking to survive. The Panlooks built their empire selling hops to the big players like Carlton United Brewers. But in 1932, after Blue Mould decimated his tobacco crop, William was in dire need of capital and negotiated a partnership with Henry Jones IXL of Tasmania. The business blossomed. This week, countrywide, good news, bad news, and a story of some people who tried to help themselves. For three generations, farmers in northern Victoria have been growing small areas of hops, but those days are now gone. A major reason that growers can't sell their production is that the local breweries are now growing their own hops. Carlton United was the first, which leaves the small independent growers with less than 20% of Australia's hop market. 
It was huge what was achieved up there with Ross Trevor Hop Garden, and it would never have been achieved without him, personally. He was a really big thinker. William's vision also captured the attention of a travelling journalist and photographer by the name of Jeff Carter. Jeff Carter um, wrote a book called Stout Hearts and Leathery Hands, and he said that, um, like, really he had the vision for craft beer, of what's happening now in the days when beer was really only the huge Carlton and United and places like that making most of the beer. Um, but he said, can't you imagine um, a label on the bottle showing the, the, you know, the farm and the local mountains and it's saying beer brewed from hops grown in the Ovens Valley and fresh mountain water from the Buffalo River on the front, which is the whole concept of, of craft beer now. And for those beer nerds out there, if you've ever heard of the varietal Galaxy or Topaz. And that was bred here as well. And then we've got another two also that were bred here as well called Vic Secret and um, Ella. The Panlooks dissolved the partnership in the early 60s and the business left the family's hands. William Panlook died September 1965, two years after retirement. But Alan Monshing, grandson of the old blacksmith Monshing, has stayed on. Ross Trevor Hops Farm is now the largest hops farm in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, this is the largest, yes. Um, we're currently 307 hectares. And it might be quite interesting for you, but we've actually just bought the Moore property. Nan Moore was a descendant of the Panlooks, and we're building hop gardens on her farm. She loved the thought of the hops coming up to the Buffalo River Valley. Well, and that her property and, and that place will also continue the legacy of the looks, the pan looks. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so what makes a legacy? How much of it rests on name alone? It was recently found out that Helena... Helena Curry, married to Pan Look Senior, the original storekeeper on the Buckland... ..was pregnant with my grandfather... And living down in the Ovens Valley, some Chinamen died in the ovens, drowned in the ovens, and she was a witness to it. And on her witness statement, so it's a legal document, she identified herself as Helena Curry Arling, which was a total surprise to us. And Diane Talbot, the historian, discovered this in her research. Then they said to me that their mother, Nanette, had been told by several people that um, Lena or Helena Curry or Pan Look already had a child when she married Pan Look and they didn't know what happened to that child, they thought it had died. So now we're thinking that William was actually the son of Ah Ling. Pan Look probably stepped in to help Ah Ling out and do the right thing and look after Helena and they all looked after each other. And then when Pan Look died... She then married Ah Ling and had two more little children. You know, maybe it's a love story and that they weren't able to be together initially, but in the end they were able to be together and that's why they got together. And regardless of the paternity of my grandfather, he was William Panlook and Panlook was his was the father to him, as it says on Panlook's grave. An unmarked grave up until recently. Panlook a Chinese fellow in the Catholic section of the cemetery, was a symbol of the years of anti-Chinese sentiment to come. But he wasn't so much displaced as ahead of his time. 
I mean, out of the thousands and thousands of Chinese that came out here during the gold rush, the very few that married and the very, you know, few descendants there would be, um, it's pretty special, really. Hops in the Ovens was produced by Miyuki Yokiranta and the sound engineer was Angie Grant. Readings and singing by Geraldine Hakewill. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.